We're in a new series in 1 Corinthians over the next few weeks. What happens when someone becomes a Christian? What does it mean for their day-to-day -day life? What does it mean for the future? Well, come along with us and see how Paul answers that question over the next few weeks. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, which says, This, then, is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human cause. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. But that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. I will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? Or what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign, so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you're so wise in Christ. And we are weak, but you are so strong. You are honoured and we are dishonoured. For this very hour we go hungry and thirsty, we are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you, as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I've sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? Wonder, have you ever found yourself squirming in a job interview? And with that make or break question, do you know the, the question I mean? What makes you the perfect fit for this role? What makes you the perfect fit for this role? I mean, that's a question that's worth pondering, isn't it? And I picture this. You wouldn't hop onto a plane 
with a pilot who's a stranger to flying. Uh, you wouldn't trust a doctor who skipped the whole of their medicine syllabus. Well, this evening we're back in Monquidians. We're delving into the qualities of a good temple builder. And as we begin, I want to point us to one particular verse. One particular verse in chapter, chapter 4. And that verse is verse 20. Someone look at that verse. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. This verse here is a key verse in the entire of 1 Corinthians. In fact, it's the key verse of this section. And with many verses of this type, it's often been used out of context. It might make us go, ooh, I don't like the idea of that verse. But as we've worked through these past four chapters, we should be able to read this verse and understand what it means. See what Paul is meaning when he says it. And what Paul is saying is this. It is not the words that matter. That is the fancy speeches, the eloquence. Instead, it is the message of the cross that has power. The message of the cross that has God's power behind it. And what is God's power doing? It's building a temple. So as the message of the cross goes out, it's beckoning people into the fellowship of the Son. But surprisingly, it is not the smooth talkers who deliver the message, but instead, rather, it goes out via weak-looking people. Those who don't simply talk the talk. It's actually God's power that's, that's at work. God's power is it's building a temple. So we're going to round off the journey through 1 Corinthians 1-4 to this evening, and we're going to dive into this question, what makes a good temple builder? What makes you fit for that role? Paul is weaving together everything from chapter 1 to chapter 4 here, revealing how people are called into the fellowship of the Son. And the Corinthians need to know this. Did you see why? In order to address that lining up behind teachers. Did you see it came up again in this chapter? And we need to know this as well in order to assess what we do here at Christchurch Hemel. So then, what makes a good temple builder? Well, the answer is in verse 1 of our passage this evening. What makes a good temple builder? Well, it's a faithful servant entrusted with the mysteries of God. Faithful servants entrusted with the mysteries of God. That is what Paul and Apollos are. Paul wants to stress that this evening. That is what every good temple builder should be. So as we work through this passage this evening, we're hopefully not going to see that it's just limited to Paul and Apollos. It's not even limited just to those who teach in a church. Instead, it's true of every true Christian. It should be true of every single one of us. Let's take a look, shall we? Well, firstly, Paul calls the Corinthians and he calls us to get our thinking straight. Have a look down at verses 1 to 5. Paul drives home the essence of the last four chapters with his first words. Verse 1. This then is how you ought to regard us. This then, what we just talked about. How you ought to regard us, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, as servants of Christ, as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. This then is how you ought to regard us. In other words, get your thinking straight. In light of everything Paul's just said, this then is how you should be thinking. You should see uh, the teachers, in this case Paul and Apollos, as two things. Uh, servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. 
We saw that last week in chapter 3. Uh, Paul and Apollos, they were workers in the fields. And that means that the mark of being a servant, or being a steward, one who's entrusted to be a good temple builder, is to be faithful. Verse 2. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Good ministry is faithful ministry. Good ministry is faithful ministry. Just imagine a waiter. You might see a waiter behind there. Uh, Just imagine a waiter. A good waiter takes the plate from the kitchen to the people. Yeah? They don't stop midway and rearrange the plates. You know what? I'm going to take those carrots out. Let's put some more peas in. Let's scrape off a bit of that sauce. I mean, is that just artistic? I don't know. Scrape that off. Who wants these sprouts? Who wants sprouts? I mean, come on. No, a good waiter is the one who takes the plates from the kitchen to the people. That's all it takes, isn't it, Sam? That is all it takes. A, a good waiter doesn't overhaul the plate in transit from the kitchen to the table. Well, just like that, a good temple builder takes the words entrusted by God and delivers them faithfully to the people. I mean, that's the benchmark. So verse 3, Paul doesn't worry about being judged in any worldly way. You see that Paul isn't after marks on his rhetoric, on his style. It's not a preacher's version of Streetly Come Dancing. You hold up your numbers at the end. It's not a TED Talk award show. What Paul is talking about here, what Paul cares about, verse 4, is God's judgment, God's opinion. True, wise, spiritual judgment of what he's doing. Just think back to the waiter. The boss's opinion matters most, not the applause of the diners. And in building God's temple, God's opinion is what truly counts. Don't add footnotes to God's words. Don't try and make up something new. Just read the script. Let's be clear. Paul isn't seeking immunity from criticism. This isn't a passage for pastors, teachers to say, don't critique me. He certainly isn't suggesting that preachers, teachers, pastors are exempt. Far from it. Instead, he is tackling the Corinthians' particular form of judgment. Uh, the form of judgment that elevates preachers to the showstopper status. Or valuing eloquence over the substance. Or thinking in a worldly way. You see, on God's scorecards, a captivating speaker who has empty content receives a big fat zero. Instead, the Corinthians, we, ought to regard teachers as servants and as those entrusted with God's mysteries. And so the mark of a good temple builder is being faithful to God's message. I mean, that changes things, doesn't it? I have heard some really captivating, engaging speakers of drivel. People who can give a fantastic thoughts for the day that is totally vapid of anything substantial. I mean, the speaking coach, the drama critic, might give you 10 out of 10 for style. The audience might find them amazing. But on God's scorecard, they get a big, fat zero. And we ought to be thinking the same. We ought to regard them the same way. And that means not thinking in earthly ways. Not thinking in worldly ways. You see there, Paul has explained the situation regarding Apollos and himself. But now he shows us why he's done it. He's not done it to put Apollos and Paul in their place. He's done it to provide a vital lesson for the Corinthians. Have a look at verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, 
I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. Do you see that the Corinthians are like a puffed up balloon? See, the issue here isn't that Paul and Apollos and Cephas have been creating teams. Instead, what's been going on is the Corinthians, in their pride, have been using the speakers to elevate themselves over one another. And Paul's goal is to deflate, to puncture that pride. Because it comes from thinking in a worldly way. So verse 6, Paul says the Corinthians are going beyond what is written. What's Paul meaning? Well, throughout this letter so far, Paul's been quoting the Old Testament. And each one of the verses he's quoted, in its own context, it's been showing the folly of pride. Every single one of them. And it's been showing the needs, the requirement, the necessity of finding faith in God alone. Each one of those verses Paul has referenced, has quoted, has been to demonstrate the folly of the proud and to call for faith in God instead. Not boasting in human wisdom, not being puffed up, following one teacher over another. So verses 7 to 8 are here to puncture that puffed up balloon. Have a look at verse 7. For who makes you different from anyone else? Or what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? You see that everything the Corinthians have has come from God, not from themselves. In the words of the old children's song, I'm special because God has loved me. Not because of anything in myself. Verse 8, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. Some people think Paul's being sarcastic here. A bit more to it than that, isn't it? He's actually saying to them, resist thinking in unworldly ways. You see, each one of these things, well, it's true if you're thinking in a worldly way. If you think like the world, you might think this is true. But thinking like the world isn't the way to be a good temple builder, is it? Because, as we've seen in 1 Corinthians, what is worldly is passing away. What seems wise to this world is actually foolishness. The Corinthians, they might feel rich, they might feel powerful by worldly standards. They might feel they're in charge of everything, that they're reigning. But that's not the mark of a good temple builder. Instead, Paul shows us what he's like. See, his goal is to be faithful. Remember verses 1 to 5? The apostles, they certainly are thriving in worldly terms. What does verse 9 say? Well, they're like those at the end of a procession, like those going into the arena to die for sports, like war prisoners on the way to their execution. They're a spectacle for the whole world to see. They're foolish-looking, weak-sounding, dishonoured, hungry, thirsty, rags, brutally treated, homeless, working with their hands, cursed, persecuted, slandered, scum of the earth, garbage of the world. And just imagine you had your worldly glasses on, We'd look at them and you'd think, well, that's grim. Bad luck. But if you've been listening to Paul, well, the worldly perspective is foolish and fleeting. And it ultimately leads to destruction. I mean, the point's starkly different, isn't it? If the Corinthians sort out their thinking, if they really grasp the call of the gospel, they really understand what God is doing in this world, if they truly get what the call of the gospel entails, they really get Paul's point. 
well, their perspective is going to change drastically. They'll get their thinking straight. They'll stop thinking in worldly ways. It will reshape the way they view the visits of Paul, of Apollos, of Cephas. And as we carry on through 1 Corinthians, it will change the way they wait, the way they live as they wait for Jesus' return too. And so Paul urges them to have good role models, verses 14 to 21. I might seem at this point Paul is shaming them. It's quite nice when Paul tells you that's not what he's doing. I mean, it might jar, but his intention isn't to shame. His point here is to warn. Have a look at, actually, let me read you 1 Corinthians 2 verse 6. Paul says, We speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. I mean, why is this crucial? Because to be effective temple builders, we need to emulate those who understand and live out the wisdom of God. So the point here is, to be a good temple builder, one must imitate a good temple builder. I mean, just think about apprentices today. If you want to learn how to operate the sound desk at Christchurch Hemel, what do you do? You spend a morning, many mornings in fact, with Eric Simon, don't you? If you want to be a good temple builder, will you find a good temple builder? And if Paul's message is true, well, you go find Paul. Do you see here, he refers to the Corinthians as his children. And that's because children, uh, for good or for ill, are like their fathers. So Paul is a good temple builder. The Corinthians, as his children, will follow in his likeness too. Whenever the Bible's talking about sons and fathers, it generally means copying them, being like them and their characteristics. So verse 16, Paul can call the Corinthians to imitate him. In fact, that's going to come up a few times through this letter. Uh, imitation, the word for tracing the same path. And each time we see this phrase, we need to remember, we're meant to be copying Paul's focus on what he's doing. We're meant to be copying the way Paul thinks. And like a child tracing the letters again and again and again. As the Corinthians imitate, as they have good role models, they're going to learn to do things right. And it's really interesting how he encourages that. Do you see how he does that? He sends Timothy. Verse 17. Do you see how Timothy is described? Timothy, my son. Timothy, like his spiritual dad. Timothy, who is faithful in the Lord. Timothy, who's going to remind them of his spiritual dad, going to remind them in his likeness of Paul. And what is going on in every church that Paul ministers in? in the entire fellowship of the Son. As I say, the emphasis on imitation is going to recur throughout this letter. It's all about tracing the path, understanding the mindset. Paul encourages this, knowing it's going to guide the Corinthians to do the right thing. Why is that crucial? Well, we know from two Corinthians, don't we? Soon there's going to be a knock at the door. Soon Paul's going to visit the Corinthians and he's going to see firsthand if they've really understood. Had they understood where we started this evening. Have they understood verse 20? For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. If so, it will mean they have reassessed what happened when Paul, upon us, Cephas, came to town. And that's going to flow into all different areas too. If not, where does he finish? Well, some of them will become arrogant. They'll remain proud, puffed up, arrogant. So in conclusion then, the key takeaway is this. Imitate good temple builders. 
See, every Christian is vital. Every Christian is a vital participant in God's plan for the world. To be a Christian is to align with God's plan for the world, which as illuminated in 1 Corinthians revolves around the construction of God's temple, bringing people into the fellowship of the Son. As 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10 emphasised, agreeing with one another in what you say, so there is no division among you, so that you're perfectly united in minds and in thoughts. And crucially, that unity is not meaning getting behind certain speakers. No, it's unity in the gospel, the greater collective task. To get on board with this mission means participating in God's building projects. It involves speaking God's words, or you could say prophesying, as later chapters of this same letter are going to say. It means leveraging every gift that God has given you to serve his mission in this world. Or you could say, to be good temple builders, individually marked by genuine wisdom, devotedly working towards what's eternal. To be good temple builders, being truly wise people, working for the thing that is ultimately going to last. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Any questions can come to podcast email podcast at david-couch.com. I'll see you next week.